This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode has been carefully curated from the Top of Mind archive, and there's a lot to choose from. We've been going in-depth with guests on the air every weekday since 2015, searching for new perspectives and ideas. I hope what you hear today makes you think about your world a little differently and sparks satisfying new conversations with the people in your life. Let's dive in. And I'm Ciara Hewlett. There are trillions of pieces of plastic floating in our oceans, killing marine animals and even making their way into the food we eat. Something clearly needs to be done, but how do we clean up microplastics when they're so tiny? This big problem may need a very small solution, microbots. Scientists in the Czech Republic have created one recently that can swim and collect microplastics. Doug Blackiston is a senior scientist at Tufts University. He wasn't involved in this particular study, but he's been tackling the plastic problem with his own living robots. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Before we get to your work, tell us about this swimming robot from the Czech Republic. What, what does it look like? Right. So this is a, a new study that just came out. And these look like a small star, if you were to look at them, the type of thing that would be um, shown in the holidays. And and it's it's about one-tenth the width of a human hair. So incredibly small, too small to see with the naked eye. And it collects sunlight, which powers this miniature robot. And that starts a chain reaction, which allows the robot to break down plastics in its local environment. So microplastics, the types of things, again, that are very small and impossible to collect with a typical filter. How does it find the microplastics? So there's no intelligent movement here. There's no programming. These uh, use hydrogen peroxide, the same type of thing that you use in hair bleach or to clean a wound as the power source. And a chemical reaction gives them a little jet engine. So by sort of driving around randomly like a bottle rocket that you would fire off just through simple motion, eventually they come into contact with plastic where they stick and then release these compounds that break down the material. And it, and then it breaks it down and then what? Does it have a little storage compartment? <laughs> to, to put no. It so what's interesting is it converts the plastic into something that's no longer harmful for the environment. So it's almost a way of transforming the plastic into something that's less dangerous. It, it breaks it down into material parts that are just typically normally found in the environment and don't cause problems to humans. Is there a concern, though, that these microbots that are so tiny could just turn into microplastic themselves that they could, you know, break down and then just float in the ocean? Right. So this is one of the chief problems that, that we've been having in traditional robotics is that when you make robots out of artificial materials, Yes, those are really great at going out and doing a, doing a job, like cleaning up microplastics or collecting. But the question is then, are you producing more robot garbage that gets collected in the oceans? It'll be interesting to see right now. It's, it's not clear how these micro robots that were developed could themselves biodegrade. Um, one option is simply if they can break down 100 times their own size in microplastics, you're still reducing the amount of waste. But it is a big question about how you would then remove these microbots from the environment themselves. But you have a different solution that actually we wouldn't need to worry about these microbots Correct. floating around in the water. Absolutely. So, so a big challenge in robotics has been to create biocompatible or biodegradable materials. And, and one option for that, which is, is pretty new, is just really going to the source. We can start to incorporate living materials into what we would think of as a traditional robot. And this has been a lot of work that's been developed at MIT, where you can layer living muscle into a robot to help drive it. So the same way that our muscles contract and they make your arms and legs move, you can make a micro robot that moves little fins and swims with muscle. So your um, robots are literally alive. Correct. So my robots are 100% biological. We essentially oh. use cells. And just like you would build with Legos, we just have very different smaller Legos that are different cells that we connect together to build a new shape or a living robot that is programmed to do something specific. And so because they're made out of cells, when they've uh, their time is over <laughs> of That's being right. alive, that they can just biodegrade? Exactly. So one of the great things is everything we've built so far has been built out of frog cells. So frogs normally live in water. They're perfectly happy there. So all of our robots live in water just fine. 
And these are non-reproducing. So these are mainly made from frog skin and a little bit of muscle cells from their stem cells. So they can't reproduce on their own. It's impossible. Um, frogs shed their skin all the time in the water and you don't get lots of frogs in the water from that process. So what we build has about a 10 day lifespan. They have enough energy to propel themselves and do work for 10 days. And then they just biodegrade and fall apart at the end of their life. What in the world do these look like? <laughs> <laughs> so that's great. We build them to look like all sorts of different shapes. We can control them. Um, with young kids who or younger audience that might be listening, this is a lot like Minecraft and building in that sort of a shape with little blocks. So we have some that look like Pac-Man that have sort of a round shape with a hole in the front for collecting things. And we have some that look like they have four limbs that can walk. And there's some that are just simple spheres. They almost look like a flying saucer. And they use little hairs on their surface to swim around their environment. And then does the surface look like frog skin? No, it, it looks... Um, so uh, under the naked eye, they're just barely visible. And it, it sort of looks like a poppy seed, just a very small, dark, pigmented piece of tissue. But if you look at it under the microscope, they're really beautiful. They have these ridges and they sort of look like the outer surface of a brain. And they're a light brown tan color with, with some nice patterns that ripple across the surface. And how would these help uh, in cleaning up microplastics? Yes. Yeah, so, so there's been a big push in general, I think, to look at biological solutions. So for us, we could engineer in these biobots some sort of pathway that would do something simpler, similar to the, the bots from the Czech Republic. They would use their own energy to consume the plastic, but at the end of their life, they biodegrade, so they're not left over. And you could also think on the flip side, outside of the environment for human medicine, you could use them to deliver drugs or do other things for a more human-focused approach. So you can tell this living robot what to do <laughs> eat this plastic right here correct swim over so these here. are frogs frog cells and uh, the power of the genetic revolution we've had over the past 20 years with the human genome project and with gene sequencing is we now have a really good ability to design these gene circuits so you can add in pathways that would allow these cells to do things they normally don't so maybe they sense light or they consume plastic, or they even clean up other types of pollution, like oil spills or heavy metals that might be in the environment. All of this is under the control of scientists. And these are things that have been pretty well worked out over the past 10 or 20 years. How? How do you control a living thing? <laughs> so this isn't genome editing, which is great. These are non-genetically modified but you can place inside of them some synthetic signals that we can build in the lab. It's, it's a complicated process, but we can create what we would call a gene regulatory circuit. So we put in something, a signal, and it allows them to produce a new type of material. So the way that, for example, our stomach produces uh, bile and, and uh, stomach acid to break down materials, we could give these cells the ability to give off something like stomach acid. Um, and it's because we understand the way that the, the stomach does those processes at the genetic level or at the gene level, we can pipe that over into other cell types now. And this is really also um, under the purview of stem cell science. So we've gotten pretty good at understanding what sort, sorts of signals are cells listening to that allow them to make the decision that I'm going to become a neuron or I'm going to become a skin cell. And so we can play with those pathways in the lab and have a fairly good amount of control over that process. So inside of this tiny robot with with frog cells does it have like beacons in it somehow like through these this process these processes you've been talking about that then you have like a controller and then you can like through a computer or something you can say okay i, I need you to do this for me uh, so, so we're the the program is almost more like like a disk drive or USB drive that you are uploading into the bot, and then okay. it has the program that it's running. We're oh. not remote controlling it; it's delivered. Okay. And so, um, maybe a better way to think about this, a good analogy is, um, you could think about the way viruses do this, right? That they they attach to your body, and they put some machinery into your cells that allow your cells to make copies of the virus these aren't viral ways that we're doing this, but it's very simple, similar that we're giving new instructions to the cell from the outside and telling them to build new machinery to do some sort of new process. Mm. I'm speaking with Doug Blackiston. He's a senior scientist at Tufts University, and he is creating living robots that might be able to help with ocean plastic pollution. 
how how why why not just use a giant robot or something to clean up the ocean and get all the microplastics? So why mm-hmm. use tiny robots? Doesn't this seem has very been efficient. A huge problem, <laughs> and, and the issue is really is that sometimes tiny problems need tiny solutions. These microplastics are so small it's incredibly difficult to identify them and pull them out. So in a typical size, we would call a microplastic something less than half of a millimeter. So nearly invisible, maybe a human hair width or smaller. These don't neatly get captured by a lot of the typical filters that we have. They go right through. The other problem is that there's a lot of microorganisms that are really beneficial to the water that size. So if you just pull out everything that's microscopic, you're going to remove all of the plankton, all of the algae, everything else that you want in there. So what you would like is something that you could target and say, go out and get the microplastics, but don't damage anything else in the ecosystem. And how would your robot be able to tell the difference between a microplastic and some other organism? Correct. So so these tricks are, are pretty well known to biologists about how to identify different signals. And so your body is extremely good at saying, I can identify a pathogenic virus or a bacteria, but not attack your healthy cells or not attack other parts of the body. And so what we need to do is we understand the types of chemicals and molecules that are are made of plastics, and they're quite different than most things in your body. And then you allow there to be receptors or signals that, that these living robots can detect, which allow them to either attach to it or release a chemical that would help break it down. How long you said, okay, yeah, you said 10 days um, that this is how long they live. But in that t- those 10 days, what, do they need to eat? Do they need to sleep? Like if these are alive, like what do they need? No. So these come with their own batteries. So much like a chicken egg has a yolk and that as a chicken develops, it consumes the yolk. So a chicken egg does not need energy from the outside. It does not need to be fed. Uh, you can develop a whole baby chick with only what's inside of the egg. Frog stem cells that we use are very similar, except instead of the the embryo sitting on top of this yolk ball, all of the cells that we build our xenobots from come with yolk inside of them. So it's like a a little internal battery or food source that they use. And they consume that over time. And that's what drives their metabolism and allows them to walk or swim. And they can do some really incredible behaviors, but they really don't need anything from the outside. Uh, they run what? out of that energy after 10 days. Okay, and yeah, that's us, what I was going to uh, ask. Is it yes. the battery just <laughs> dies out and that's when they, they die? Exactly. So your batteries run out and your remote control is done and that's when they die. For us, that's a great feature because it's also a kill switch. You, you might not want these running around the oceans for months at a time or potentially forever. So we have a really good granular control over what we can predict these will do in a specific time. Um, I would also specify at this point that this is all in the laboratory only. To move this into releasing robots into the water requires a lot of regulation and oversight that would come way further down the line. If these are living cells in these robots, does that mean that they they could heal? They can. So that's another, uh, there's some really great baked in features to biology that traditional robots don't have. So you already hit on a, bo- a lot of them that come up naturally. So they, they biodegrade. Traditional robots have trouble with that. They have a, their own power source. They don't need external power source. And also something that's really difficult with a traditional robot is self-healing. If, if a Mars rover loses uh, a wheel, it's probably not going to grow a new one. But all of the cells in our xenobots are capable of, of repairing their skin cells. And so if you give them an injury, if they receive a laceration or a puncture wound, they heal it incredibly fast. So within about one minute, the wound closes. And in about five minutes, they go back to doing whatever it was they did before. Wow. That's fast. A- absolutely. So uh, much like your own body, biology is highly motivated to, to heal a wound that is a open surface that can allow bacteria to get in or allow blood to escape. And so selection, natural selection has, has really pushed all biological organisms to close their wounds as fast as possible. Is it ethical though, to build a robot that's also alive? Yes. So this is a a really interesting question. Um, there's a, there's this idea of to what, what degree do humans have the ability to design new life forms? Um, 
On one hand, I will say these are very benign. If, if you've ever known somebody or yourself had a skin biopsy in the lab, there are many more types of cells and cells in that skin biopsy than are in our xenobots, which are only a little bit of skin and muscle. So from an ethical point of view, there's really not a whole lot going on here that's different between a skin biopsy. On the other hand, I think there are questions as our ability to design biology becomes more complex, what level of oversight is regulated? So this isn't my work, but there's a lot of work now looking at growing brain organoids in a dish, things that resemble brains in a Petri dish. And there's currently no regulation on are these conscious or should they be treated as so? So these are questions that bioethicists are currently grappling with, and that certainly from a, a legal perspective, we are, are grossly behind in understanding what these systems are capable of. And lastly, when do you think we'll actually see these micro living microbots that you're, you're creating actually someday in the oceans, cleaning up microplastic, or as you said earlier, that maybe they could even help with, with, um, with uh, medical things? Correct. So the, the, the speed of science moves incredibly slow, which is frustrating to us wet lab scientists, but it does move. So what we've built right now is proof of principle. These are working in the lab. We have them doing interesting behaviors. We've had them gathering up particles from their environments and contaminants. I would say the path uh, to some sort of small scale deployment is very direct. I think within five years, you could see some sort of pilot studies in a very controlled system. And certainly within 10 years, you could see these working in actual applications for human use. Doug Blackiston is a senior scientist at Tufts University where he's developing living robots with real frog cells. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'm Ciara Hewlett. This is Top of Mind. Coming up in about 15 minutes, people undergoing treatment for cancer are often told to get as much rest as possible. But what if the best thing for their health is to keep moving? But next, we'll hear why some social scientists say we need to ditch the labels baby boomer, Gen X, and millennial. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. We've collected some of our favorite interviews from past years. Thanks for listening. This is Top of Mind. Today, we've collected some of our favorite interviews from past years. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in to Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. It's good to have you with us today. you got the boomers, Gen X, millennials, now Gen Z. We all know what they are. You probably even know which you are. You definitely know some of the stereotypes that go with those generations, right? Boomers are stodgy. Gen Xers are slackers. Millennials are entitled. But none of that is real. The names and definitions just sort of get adopted over time when enough people use them. And there are plenty of social science researchers who think they're not very helpful and might even be harmful. Philip Cohen is the face of the resistance on this. He's a sociologist at the University of Maryland. An open letter he posted earlier this year pleading for researchers to stop using these generational labels got 200 signatures and a lot of press. He's on the line now. Philip Cohen, welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. Your open letter was directed specifically at the Pew Research Center. Why? Well, uh, the Pew Research Center does a lot of um, uh, excellent research, a lot of important work, and gets a lot of attention. And they had developed a pretty um, uh, reliable practice of categorizing people according to these generation labels um, and also had, had sort of formalized them more than anyone else. So they actually put out sort of an official statement when they started using the term Generation Z and they had sort of their reasoning for it. Um, and I think uh, they more than anybody sort of represented the um, the public face of the the concept of these generations. And I thought um, since they're they are researchers and good researchers with good values, I thought um, you know we could we could get somewhere by. Uh, by reaching out to them. And I think we probably can. Hmm. Uh, okay, so what's your concern exactly? Is it the names themselves? You just don't like boomer or millennial as a word? <laughs> no. Um, you know, I, I also, I, I think um, on, the, on the, I'll start with something on the plus side, which is when people are born makes a big difference. 
Um, and, and, and people who research families and family life and um, careers and all kinds of issues have to pay attention to sort of the eras when people were born. And science is all about categories, you know, um, biological science or chemistry or anything, and including social science, we, we put things into categories all the time. So that's all okay. The problem is these categories just aren't real. They, mm-hmm. Someone just made them up um, and slapped labels on them, which would be relatively harmless, except when they take on a life of their own um, and people start um, putting stereotypes and values on them, uh, then it can start getting in the way of thinking more uh, s- more realistically about the things that actually influence people's lives. Okay, you so know, two. Start- so sorry. So it sounds like you have two. Yeah. You have kind of two strands of concern. On the one hand, um, the actual sort of years that have been designated to divide boomers and Gen Xers and millennials and Gen Z. Like you take issue with the definition, like which years are included, mm-hmm. um, but also just the notion, the, the way the way in which the stereotypes surrounding boomers and millennials and Gen Xers and Gen Z, uh, that the, the, the labeling creates that like that's a whole separate issue that you're also concerned mm-hmm. about. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the categories, it's also, it's not just that the categories, like the years, you know, like um, Venus and Serena Williams are in two different generations by the popular scheme. You know, they're only born one year apart. So that doesn't really, um, doesn't make much sense. Um, Uh But so, and there's, you know, an infinite number of examples like that. It's also, I don't think you can create a category, a group of years that hang together in some kind of um, overarching way. So the, Take the baby boom. The baby boom was a real demographic event. Um, you know, the birth rate shot up after World War II, and it lasted about 18 years, and then the birth rate came back down. Um, so there are people who were born during that period who all have one thing in common. They were all born during a period of high birth rates. But they have a lot else in their lives that they don't have in common. The early baby boom, um, the uh, people born in the beginning of that period had very high rates of military service, and the people born at the end of that period had very low rates of military service. Um, you know, the the women of the baby boom in the late baby boom were in the labor force and had moved on to higher education much more and new and integrated new occupations much more than the women of the early baby boom. So they have one thing in common, but you can't really put them, you, you can't sort of define a common set of experiences or attitudes and attach it to them. It doesn't, um, it doesn't hold together. What's another example of that where uh, people within the same cohort as defined by, you know, these definitions, boomer, Gen X, millennial, what's another example of people within one of those groups that depending on if you were born towards the beginning or the end m- might have had a very different life experience? Well, um, Uh, Look at millennials. I mean, if millennials are born sort of between 1980 and 1996, say, how old were they uh, when the Great Recession happened in 2009? Um, uh, uh, Some of them were came out of school already before the Great Recession, and some of them graduated right into the middle of it. So they had a vastly different experience in terms of entering into the labor market. Um, you know, if you if you graduated um, school and entered the labor market in 2009, um, you had a very different experience from someone who did that in 2007. And that probably is going to mark you um, for the rest of your life. Um, the birth rate fell a lot after 2009. So the late millennials had a whole different experience. They delayed um, having their first child more and had fewer children. Um, so, I mean, you can you can cut these a lot of ways. There are there are common experiences that shape people. I mean, I think if you were six years old in 2020 um, and you were um, trying to do Zoom school in Mm. first grade, um, you know, that's with, you know, that's a real experience that, you know, you'll have in common with people for a long time. But I'm not sure you can group the people, you know, five years older and five years younger than that and say, okay, this is a group. So are you saying that from a research perspective, you have to you have to define your generation or your your cohort based on what you're trying to figure out. You can't just exactly. sort of sweep all the millennials into one category or all the boomers or all the Gen Zers. You have to say, I'm interested in 
um, you know, people who were old enough to have a phone when smartphones came out in 2007, or I'm interested in knowing what has become of, you know, people who were entering the market, the, the job market during the Great Recession. You just have to be a lot more specific about how you're defining those those generations. Yeah, exactly. And you can look for interesting connections. You know, you can say people who were sort of digital natives and grew up with, um, uh, you know, an online social life and never experienced that as a new thing. They may have a lot in common with each other, but I don't think you're going to find, you know, they're all Democrats <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. So um, you know, there are these these the stereotypes that come out of these groups are sort of um, sometimes they, they reflect a little bit of an underlying trend. And then we just lose the ability to really learn from it and think critically about it when we just start slapping the label. Well, OK, so um, so. Professor Cohen, nobody is forcing you in your research to use the definition of baby boomer with specific years. When you start, when you know, when you're researching trends in populations and across generations. So, I mean, what's the harm in 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 the Pew Research Center and a whole lot of marketers using using those labels and using those definitions to sort of kind of narrow in? It's not as precise, but, you know, it's good enough for what we're trying to do. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not the end of the world. Um, I don't want to exaggerate the, the, the seriousness of this problem. It just it just makes it a little harder to do good research. Um, I think, um, you know, the first pass, I would say, do it by decades. You know, you could look at people born in the 80s, the 90s or whatever. Um, have a look, see if there's a big see if there's a big trend or a big change. Then you can zero in on it and see if there's something specific. You know, people who joined the military after 9-11, you know, that's a that's a specific question. You could really you could look at that group of people um, or, uh, you know, people who graduated in the Great Recession. Um, but I, I think if you start looking, if you start forcing the categories, then you can miss um, other interesting connections. So it's really uh, it's an appeal to um, a, a more sensible approach to research and also to recognize that the public uh, looks to us researchers for to make sense of a rapidly changing, complicated, conflictual world. And it doesn't it doesn't help us to, um, uh, you know, it's sort of like when you give it a name, um, you end up um, transferring a lot of uh, values and stereotypes that just aren't going to uh, they're going to they're going to they're mm. they're not, they're not going to help us understand things. Um I I'd love to hear your thoughts on cuz until you brought this up um as part of this open letter it hadn't really occurred to me that that this might you know that you not that you might not be able to draw some sort of make some important conclusions by looking at big groups of people roughly defined as you know 15 to 20 years starting with the the generation before the boomers, right? So to me, there there's some logic to saying like every 15 to 20 years, you have another group of adults who is, you know, starting to have children. And so that's, you know, let's, let's define it as that, right? Um, and one of the ways in which it seemed like it could be useful is some research uh, that the Pew Research Center did showing where the wealth is in America and how boomers hold half of the wealth in the United States twice as much as Gen Xers who came after them, 10 times as much as millennials. Some of that is because they're just older and they've had more time to accumulate wealth. But it also might bring up some important questions about income inequality or the increasing wealth gap in America. Um, do you disagree that, that, that there could oh, be no. some value in that way in, in, in looking at these not very precise, but still you know, categories <laughs> that you could do something. No, with. I actually, I absolutely agree. I mean, those are important historical changes and they, those are that the wealth is a great example of a change that really is generational in that um, the people who um, entered into home ownership uh, after uh, world war two in the post-war period, we had an economic boom. We had suburbanization. We had the federal government subsidizing home ownership and a generation of people, you could say, ended up owning homes, uh, and and that became a basis for wealth in their families. Um, and those conditions have not repeated themselves. Hmm. Um, they don't match up with these current categories in a particularly meaningful way, but that is a change um, over the generations in the sense of young people nowadays are more likely to be relying on their grandparents for um, financial support and stability Whereas young people 50 years ago were more likely to be putting up their grandparents 
um, uh, uh, when they, or their parents when they were older and retired. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we have introduced Social Security and Medicare and, you know, old people used to be had the highest poverty rate. Now children have the highest poverty rate. So those are important historical changes. And they do have to do with when people were born and when they were raised. Um, uh, it, 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 you're not going to find that it lines up with these categories particularly well, but at any moment you could say, you know, young people nowadays differ from young people at some point in the past. And it's very important to ask those kinds of questions. I see. So you could, you're saying you could still, you could still understand that, find those trends and make those conclusions without adhering to the, uh, the, the years defined by boomer, Gen X, millennial, and Gen Z. Yeah. And actually I would also add to that, that, um, a, a lot of the time, the things we're saying about generations are really some variation on kids these days. Right, right. <laughs> and so kids these days used to be millennials, and now kids these days are Gen Z. And you're going to find that we say a lot of the same things, you know, um, that we said about the previous generation. Um, and, and so... Do you know, think it, that that's actually to- harmful, though? I mean, beyond... It's it's sort of like what we do. <laughs> we look, we label, <laughs> right. you know, and and look askan- askance a little bit at generations that are not our own, people who are not our peers. I mean, do you think that using these labels is really making that problem different in any way? Well, I, I just it just makes it harder to understand what's really happening. You know, if young people are more progressive, say, um, that may be something that goes with being young that we find throughout the ages. Um, and and it, it's important to, to think about it that way rather than assume, oh, millennials are, you know, have some kind of liberal attitudes. So um, we can just assume that they will carry those attitudes into later in life. Hmm. Um, you know, maybe they will, maybe they won't. That's a question for research. But but sometimes what we're looking at are just things that have to do with age. And and it does you know, kind of seem strange, though, to, to I mean, as a as a Gen Xer, it I've always found it a little weird that I mean, Maybe there was something to the slacker generation when we were like 20, <laughs> but now we're in our late 40s and it seems, it just sort of seems irrelevant to think about Gen Xers as, you know, apathetic somehow. Exactly. That was really a kids these days moment. Yeah. Um, the other thing about millennials as entitled, there really was a, an extreme class bias into the way the image of millennials was described. I mean, we mm. always had poor working class millennial people of that same age who, you know, were not used to having things handed to them on a silver platter, who were not, um, you know, didn't expect um, um, uh, uh, life to work the way the stereotypical millennial did with avocado toast and, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, overextended student loans. Um, so, you know, the, if, you, if you're going to start um, over, over generalizing, sometimes you end up with a certain kind of bias, which is especially unhelpful. You think that permeates into the way people treat each other, or is it just something that we... I do. I mean, you know, I, I, I get a, I have a, a, you know, I can enjoy a good, okay, boomer meme as much as anybody (laughs) else. Um, But there's also age discrimination, which is real. Um, And, and we should take young people seriously, and we should take old people seriously and, and, um, and not write off their, um, and not, um, you know, collapse them into a, a stereotype or, um, a caricature when, in fact, they have, you know, they're real people with real lives. Um, so, you know, I don't want to exaggerate how bad the the, the labeling problem is um, contributing to ageism or whatever else. But I do think you have to watch out for, um, you know, in any time you're applying categories, you're running the risk of dehumanizing people, at least a little. You know, I like categories as much as anybody else, but you do have to be uh, you know, mindful of how you use them. So if we were to just get rid of the the labels themselves, um, what what kinds of, I mean, what would you call, <laughs> mm-hmm. would you say like the post-World War II and the post-9-11 and the like, you know, what, what do you think would be some important and meaningful, maybe cultural or historical markers that actually could make some, you know, that could actually define a generation in a useful way? Well, it's, you know, in a way, the problem may take care of itself. You know, when we got to Generation Z, that sort of should have signaled that the, There's no more the letters. situation <laughs> had jumped the shark. You know, it was sort of, it was not, um, you know, where could we go? Greek letters, you know, double letter prime. Um, so uh, I, I think, you know, you know we, we don't have to, we don't have to try to, to work that out. But I do think um, we do want to pay attention to you know, demographers will call it a cohort, the group that you're born with, not a generation, because a generation 
sort of implies a reproductive generation, like your parents, your grandparents, and so on. Um, but a group of people who had something in common, um, I think we're going to find um, we could we could talk about you know the pandemial generation. Hmm. Um, we could talk about people who were um, uh, who lived through um, uh, you know people who had served in mil- the military in different wars. We can talk about people who um, you know whose whose first experience with politics was living under President Trump. Hmm. Um, so we could we can we can make good generalizations um, about real life experiences, and I think I'm sure we'll find ways to do that. But I think the danger would be, you know, if you want to talk about young people thinking about politics and, you know, this this generation of high school students are like the Parkland, the Parkland generation of students who are, um, you know, exposed to Trump and concerned about mass shooting and gun control. Um, That's not everybody that age, of course. But there's a solid group of people that have, you know, been through something in common. But I think it would be a mistake to say everybody that age um, uh, has 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 the same perspective that everybody that age is going to vote the same way or listen to the same music or eat the same food. Um, but I think we can describe, you know, people who lived through that moment at a certain time in their lives. Um, and, and we may find that it's useful. Um, I think it just depends, you know, what we're actually trying to explain. And I think right. we'll end up with a perfectly rich landscape of concepts and terms. We'll just won't be cramming them all into this parade of of nonsensically constructed categories. Philip Cohen, what <laughs> <laughs> a great phrase there, uh, parade of nonsensically constructed categories. Is that what you said? <laughs> That's I guess great. so. Philip Cohen is a professor of sociology at the University of Maryland. Thanks a lot for your time today, for sharing your perspective. Oh, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Coming up next, we'll meet the founder of the Moving Through Cancer Initiative, which advocates both cardio and strength training for people before, during, and after cancer cancer diagnosis. More great conversations from the Top of Mind archive are coming up. I'm Julie Rose. The conversations in today's episode come from the Top of Mind archive. I'm Julie Rose, and we are glad to have you with us today for Top of Mind. Cancer treatment can be grueling, so patients are often told to rest as much as possible. That may be just the opposite of what they need. There is growing research to suggest exercising before, during, and after a cancer diagnosis improves the likelihood and the speed of recovery. Think about that for a second. You're asking a person who may be in a lot of pain, whose body is exhausted from chemo or radiation, to what, lift some weights, go for a run? Catherine Schmitz is a leading researcher and advocate of this approach, which she calls Moving Through Cancer. It's also the title of her new book. She's director of the Oncology, Nutrition, and Exercise Group at Penn State Cancer Institute. And she's on the line. Dr. Schmitz, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Let's talk about in-cancer treatment first, because your approach talks about before, like before the treatment and also after, but it's in cancer treatment that I think is maybe counterintuitive, especially counterintuitive to people. What kind of exercise are you recommending for a person in that in that situation? Yeah, we are not recommending going for a jog and doing CrossFit. Let's put it that way. Um, so, you know, what we're recommending is that people move. Uh, what we're recommending is that no one benefits from sitting on the couch all day, every day, including somebody who is undergoing chemotherapy or radiation treatments. So the recommendations are that people do about 30 minutes worth of walking about three times a week. And frankly, not to get too tied up with what that recommendation is and to do maybe a little more than what they were thinking they should have done. Uh, And what we find with over 200 randomized controlled trials is that very counterintuitively, as you said, uh, that that actually is the very best medicine for cancer-related fatigue. Wow. Oh, wow. For specifically what they're doing is they're addressing their fatigue. So you have a situation where the last thing a person wants to do is get off of get out of their bed yes. because their body, maybe they can barely, you know, muster the energy to make it to the restroom or the kitchen. And you're saying just walk gently on a, on a, like on a treadmill, maybe, or walk around on the a treadmill a or around the house or, you know, stepping side to side. Um, 
basically what I'm saying is that they should be sitting less. And, you know, if they can get out and go for a walk for 20 minutes or a half hour, that's fantastic. Three times a week. We have really stunning data. In fact, they're the, one of my favorite papers on this topic compared the effectiveness of an exercise intervention three times a week of aerobic exercise, uh, like walking, um, compared to the, any of the drugs that are available for cancer-related fatigue. Mm. And the results show that there is not a drug on the market that is better than going for a walk for cancer-related fatigue. So what, at the end of their... though it may be. Do, so at the end of their walk, they're feeling energized, is what That's you're correct. saying. Okay. That's correct. Which I think most of us can relate to. Cancer treatment or not, there are plenty of times where I just cannot get off the couch, but I know that <laughs> if I do, I'm going to have more energy and I'll have clearer thinking afterwards. So so it helps with the fatigue that comes with cancer treatment can, or, and cancer itself. Does it help with anything else in terms yes. of the cancer treatment? Well, we know that about 45% of cancer patients while they're undergoing treatment experience elevated anxiety and exercise is a fantastic treatment for anxiety during cancer treatment. It's also excellent for sleep and sleep is disordered in the majority of cancer patients at some point or another during their treatment. It's excellent for bone health, lymphedema, physical function, which is our ability to do the things that we need to do with our bodies to get through our days, quality of life, depression. Shall I keep going? Well, do they actually <laughs> do they actually beat the cancer more successfully if they exercise? Yep. So uh, for three very common cancers, we have uh, really um, gorgeous data that show us that exercise reduces the likelihood of recurrence or mortality for breast colon and prostate cancers. Hmm. Why would that, how, how could that work? Why would walking, that work? you know, three times oh, a week? Excellent question. <laughs> and that is an area of active investigation. So um, the way that might work is in part through changes in body composition and uh, by changing, uh, increasing lean mass and decreasing fat mass, we decrease the inflammatory processes in the body that occur with obesity um, so there could be inflammatory uh, markers that change. There could also be uh, changes in what we call the tumor microenvironment as a result of being more physically active. We have animal model evidence that shows us that we have a normalization of the um, vasculature that goes to the tumor um, with exercise. And uh, that allows the chemotherapy agents to get to the tumor better so it's quite possible hmm. that by exercising during and after your cancer treatment, you're actually improving your chances of survival. Dr. Schmitz, you talk about something in the book called uh, prehabilitation. Um, describe how that works and, and what kind Absolutely. of exercises. So, so this is one of those um, secret sauce issues in the book. Um, there are a few things in the book that I like to think of as a secret sauce. So, um, uh, you know, if you... Um, start with uh, somebody who is uh, probably sedentary at the point of their cancer diagnosis, and they have two, three weeks before they're going to have their first treatments, whatever those treatments might be. If we can get that person going and working pretty hard, actually, the rehabilitation program is pretty intensive, um, then they improve their cardiovascular function, their body composition, they decrease inflammation, and they're gonna get out of the hospital quicker they're going to spend fewer days in the hospital. They're going to recover from their surgery better if there is a surgery that happens. All just because uh, for going, three weeks they worked out? You bet. Three weeks worth of rehabilitation is shown over and over and over again, not just in cancer, but it turns out that it works for a variety of different kinds of medical interventions. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's, there's a, a, a very reliable response to an intensive exercise intervention uh, over just a few weeks even I would have, uh, that can very predictably improve outcomes for medical interventions. I would, have, cancer. I would have thought that with two to three weeks that it's too late. You know, if you have if you've had 15, yeah. 15 years of sedentary life and not much exercise oh. and maybe not eating quite the diet that you can actually make a difference in two to three weeks is kind of stunning. How, how intensive is this workout that you have to do? Yeah. 
we're talking about, you know, at least three times a week of aerobic activity that makes you hop and pop a bit. You know, this is not the walk that you're doing during chemotherapy, right? This is, okay, let's push. Let's, you know, go as hard as we can. Um, and uh, at least twice, if not three times a week of progressive resistance exercise. Um, and ideally, this would be done in a supervised setting, but can be done at home. Yeah. So you lay out in the book, Moving Through Cancer. I mean, there are five weight, like weightlifting sounds or strength training sounds intimidating to a lot of people, especially if you haven't spent a lot of time in a gym. And all of a sudden now you've got three weeks to sort of make the most of your time. You're not going to go sign up at the gym. But this is stuff that with some some lightweight um, barbells or like, you know, hand hand weights. Right. You can do these things at home um, in terms of just like working specific muscle groups. Is that right? Absolutely. And, um, you know, it, it should be noted that, you know, the entire book is written from the perspective of wanting it to be readable by the person who is currently hearing cancer, cancer, you know, in every other ear, you know, that that's, yeah. that's, you know, uh, we, we recognize that, you know, the thing that is at, as, at top of mind is, you know, oh my goodness, I'm facing something really difficult here. So, you know, we tried to make it very easily readable and followable. Now, the power of your recommendations is that it's based in actual research, you know, scientific studies that have been done on people who actually have cancer. Um, but but can you tell us a story, an anecdote, a, a patient that you've worked with for whom this has made a difference? Oh, my goodness. My favorite story, my favorite story, metastatic breast cancer patient came in. Um, she looked like a question mark when she came in. She was so bent over. She looked like a question mark. She had a walker. She could only go a few steps at a time. And, you know, and she signed up for this study that we were doing. And uh, we gave her a pedometer and we set her out with this, you know, tablet-based uh, program that we had developed called Nurse Amy. And uh, she came back 90 days later and uh, was walking 10,000 steps a day. She no longer needed the walker. She was walking with a cane just for, you know, for balance. Um, stunning, stunning results. And that was somebody who had uh, metastatic breast cancer, including um, metastases to her spine. This was d- during then and after her treatment. So her quality yeah. of enli- her, her mobility, her stamina had increased significantly, yeah. it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Her, her ability to do anything in her life was improved. Her quality of life went through the roof. And it was so fun to watch her walk in the door. She walked in actually swinging her cane like Charlie Chaplin. Because <laughs> she was so proud. How do you approach patients with um, uh, with other mobility and balance issues, though, to, you know, to begin with? Right. So one of the things that we include within the book, and there's a website that goes with the book that is of the same name, movingthroughcancer.com, is uh, chair exercise. And um you know, do not be fooled. A chair exercise session can be quite um, uh, intensive um, and can be, you know, very, very mild at the same time. So just depends on, uh, you know, which, which one you choose. Um, so uh, I think that uh, everybody can get something out of an exercise program. Everybody, everybody, even if you are uh, wheelchair bound, let's get you moving. Dr. Schmitz, you are clearly convinced here, but how likely is it that a person's oncologist is going to recommend exercise? The American Society of Clinical Oncology did a survey of medical oncologists just a few years ago, and 80% of medical oncologists were uh, ready to say that exercise should be a part of their cancers, their, their patient's cancer care. Mm, okay. So this is growing in acceptance. Um it, is there is there any risk to to extra movement if you're doing it in a way that won't increase your chances of falling? You know, can you overdo it in any way? Certainly. So uh, the way that we uh, work with patients is uh, the 10 minute rule. So if you are starting to do exercise and you're not sure how much you should do, you should um, do the exercise uh, mildly for 10 minutes. And if you feel better, keep going. If you feel like you're still okay, then sure, keep going. If you feel worse, stop. If you are ever in question of whether you should continue after 10 minutes of doing something, if you feel worse, stop. You mentioned that ideally this exercise would be done in the care of, an, of a professional. Is exercise 
typically typically covered by health insurance in in situations of cancer treatment? It is if it is delivered by a healthcare professional, and those professionals would be physical therapists. There are physical therapists that have specialty training in oncology, but there are also exercise professionals, and there are programs in most major cancer centers. Uh, have a program for what we call exercise oncology. Hmm. And, uh, and, you know, that certainly exists across the United States. Um, would, the pre, have, would the prehabilitation piece of it typically, I mean, I've never heard, uh, maybe it happens that you get sent to, <laughs> to, to physical therapy before you've even had the treatment or the surgery. Yes, actually, that is protocolized for a number of different medical interventions. So hmm. for example, if you're going to have a total knee replacement, you have to go through some physical therapy and do prehabilitation before you have your surgery. Hmm. So we do this already in a number of other settings. We just need to normalize it in cancer. For cancer, yeah. Finally, um, could you share a piece of advice for a caregiver who has a loved one who is in pain, they're exhausted, and that caregiver is thinking, well, I'm not going to tell them to go, to go take a walk. Like, I'm just happy if they'll eat something, right? <laughs> What's your advice for caregivers who are trying to, to bolster, you know, a loved one who, who, who could benefit from exercise? You know, this is the other secret sauce issue, and that is that um, I like to liken it to driving your car on a regular basis. If you drive your car on a regular basis and your car makes a new rattle, then you know it's a new rattle and you know you need to do something about it. Well, how do you know how your body is doing and responding to treatment unless you use your body? So if you can get your cancer patient up off the couch and just walking around the house even to say, well, how does that feel today? And then log how that feels. And then the next day, do it again. If you have a regular log of how it feels to walk around the house, even just around the house, then suddenly you know when something is really different. And that can be very important information for your cancer doctor. Catherine Schmitz is director of the Oncology, Nutrition, and Exercise Group at Penn State Cancer Institute. She's author of Moving Through Cancer, an exercise and strength training program for the fight of your life. Dr. Schmitz, thanks for your time today. Thank you so much. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. It has been great having you with us today for this curated episode of the show from our archives. You know, we've been on the air every weekday since 2015, and there are so many conversations we've had during that time that are worth another listen. When we started the show back then, our goal was to dig deep, because no matter how clear cut you think an issue is, there's always another perspective. And there's likely to come a moment while listening to Top of Mind when you think, huh, that had not occurred to me. You can tap into the full Top of Mind archive on the free BYU Radio app. And we'd love to have you connect with us on social media to let us know what you think of the show. We are at BYU Top of Mind on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.